What a blessing the music is to the service of the Lord. Amen. So we come this morning, we rejoice as we come uh, to celebrate the roles and responsibilities within worship for men and women. As we come this morning, indeed, this is a good week to come to deal with the issue of relationships. If you missed out last night on our wonderful uh, Valentine's dinner and banquet over in the Fellowship Hall, you missed a wonderful time. Men's ministry did a wonderful job uh, of providing a great opportunity for us to show our appreciation and our affection for our wives and for men to show it to their wives and for the women to show it to their husbands. Uh, but as we come today, we are going to be talking about roles and responsibilities within the church. And you'll see on the screen that this is part one because indeed this passage requires more than just a surface level treatment because this is one of the most controversial issues within the church's teaching within our culture today. And so we want to go slow and make sure that we understand exactly what God's word is saying and apply it rightly to the local church body in our structure and organization. And so as we come today, I want to start by reminding you of what we said last week. We said that our hearts and lives are to reflect God, our Savior's heart, in the practice and priority of evangelistic prayer in our lives and the life of our congregation. Indeed, a priority is to be put on our communication with God for all people at all times within the corporate assembly of God's church. As the Apostle Paul is now laying out the order and the structure of the New Testament church, and that is what he is doing in First Timothy. Indeed, if you look at chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, you will immediately see that when he says, I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write to you that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of truth. Why was he writing these things to the church? So that they might know how they ought to conduct themselves. And so this is the order and the structure that God is giving, given for his local church family. Indeed, he turns now to the Paul turns now to the responsibilities of the male and female Christian that would be participating within the worship service. As we will see, he begins with a countercultural command by addressing and authorizing the men within the congregation to be the leaders of the local assembly. He then turns his attention to the women with words of wisdom for their part in the service. But the primary issues of importance for both men and women engaged in the worship of the living God are holiness, godliness, and consecrated lives that testify to the transformative work of God's gospel in the midst of our lives. As I come today to preach the whole counsel of God's word, not just a piece, not just a part, not just a portion, but the whole counsel of God's word, I must tell you I feel a little bit like a weatherman. Most of us think that uh, being a TV weatherman or TV weather personality, as they may be called, is a very easy job. You just stand in front of a screen, after all. You don't have to report on the wars and the tragedies of the day. All you do is stand in front of a screen and tell the people what has happened in the last 24 hours in the weather patterns and what might happen in the next 24 hours, predicting all sorts of things, possibly snow, possibly rain, possibly sunshine. Reality is, though, as I have read, indeed, even the weathermen 
receive all kinds of threats upon their person and upon their life because of the predictions that they make due to the weather. People call up and they swear at them because the weather isn't what they wanted or because they have wrongly forecasted the weather. I would, if I had to garner a guess, I would guess the latter is probably the most true. They have not accurately predicted the weather. One weatherman received in the mail a hangman's news as if he were somehow responsible for the bad weather. Being a pastor is kind of like that at times. Indeed, I didn't write the Bible. I stand before you merely to report what God has written upon his eternal word. Indeed, God didn't even consult me in the process, and I am merely trying to report what the Bible is saying. But sometimes people get upset with me because they don't like the report. They don't like the forecast of what God says should be happening and occurring within their life or within the life of the church. For some, that's probably going to happen over these next two weeks. It's going to be the case that when I tell you what the Bible says about the roles and responsibilities of men and women within the church, you might get upset. But before you fire off a letter to me, I want you to sit down and to prayerfully consider what the Word of God says. If many of us wrote the script of the church, our personal preferences and our own pragmatism might be tempted to change the biblical message. But listen to me, being a Christian doesn't mean that we change the biblical message to be more compatible or palatable within our culture and within our country. It means that being a Christian, we are to obey the biblical command. My task today and next week is to tell you what God's Word says about this sensitive but significant topic of roles and responsibilities within the worship service of the living God. And with that being the foundation by which I approach this task, let me ask you now to stand as we read together the Word of God concerning the roles and responsibilities in worship. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 15, we find the entire text, and this is what the word of the Lord says. Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. But women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. Father, we ask now that you would give us guidance, that you would give us instruction. Father, as we come now 
to study the word of the Lord, we ask that you, the Lord of the word, would make it plain what you intend by this passage. And Father, that as we let it fall upon the the thoughts of our mind and into the depths of our heart, that it would change who we are and how we see the roles and responsibilities of men and women within the worship service, that indeed, God, you would increasingly conform us to the image of Jesus Christ, that you would allow us to live holy lives, godly lives, consecrated lives, as we worship you here together this morning. Father, may you lead us and guide us now. And Father, as always, we ask that you would speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. We see within this passage that the worship of God, the worship of God is to be composed of men and women that live consecrated lives and are known for their holiness and godliness. Indeed, the worship of God, the congregation of the local church within the community should be composed of men and women who are living consecrated lives to God and are known for their holiness and godliness. Once again, within this passage, I want you to understand that the point of this passage is not to enslave one sex to to another. It is not to exalt one sex over the other. Rather, the point of this passage is to show that men and women are equal and yet different, equal and yet distinct within the roles and responsibilities that they are to fulfill within the local church. Indeed, we need to understand that and we need to apply that. But I want you to, as you listen, to hear not the preacher standing before you preaching. I want you to hear the word of God and see what it says so that it might give direction and details to your life and my life. So as we come today, let us commit ourselves to hear the word of God and to respond to what it says and not just to what we think and not just to what we feel. For in that moment that we allow our thoughts and our feelings to supersede the word of God, we have now made ourselves God over the God of this text. And that is a very dangerous place. And so let us approach rightly the scriptures of God and hear what God has to say. First of all, in verse 8, he says that Christian men are to be holy as they lead the congregation. Christian men are to be holy as they lead the congregation. Paul began here to lay the foundations of the order of the local church within chapter 2, verse 1, with a command to at all times and all places for the people of God to lift up their voices to God by entreaties, prayers, supplications, and thanksgivings. Now, first of all, I want you to understand, here in verse 8, he says, I want all men to pray, but there in verse 1, he doesn't just limit that to just men, does he? He says, I want you all to be doing this. And so specifically, we need to understand each and every person is responsible to make their voice known before God by entreaties, prayers, supplications, and thanksgivings. If you don't understand that and you don't quite understand what that means, that's okay. We've got a podcast on iTunes. Go to it and pull it up and listen to it. Uh, You can hear that entire message from last week. But the principle here is that when we are unable to talk to men about God, we are always able to talk to God about those men. Even when we're unable and limited in our resources to talk to men about God, we can always talk to God about men. Indeed, which one of us has had a meeting with President Obama this year? Anybody? 
I didn't think so. I haven't either. But guess what? I can always go before God, my king, and make my request known to him. And we see here that Paul challenges the church's prayers and heart to be in line with God's evangelistic plan and priority of proclaiming the gospel to every man, every woman, and every child. Indeed, in verses 1 through 7, there is a priority placed upon prayer, people, and the gospel. And within the church of Almighty God, we are to have our priorities aligned with God's heart. And we are to put a priority on prayer, people, and the gospel as well. In verse 8, the apostle, by the command of God our Savior and Jesus Christ our hope, according to chapter 1, verse 1, commands the men, the adult males, in every congregation to lead the church body in the priority of prayer. Now let me just stop there and say as a word of wisdom to you, if you are tempted to say, well, I don't like that. Maybe Paul meant mankind. Listen, he didn't mean mankind. He uses a specific word in the Greek that means adult Males, which are what? Men. So he didn't make a mistake. And that's why he's going to say in verse 8, men, your role and responsibility is this. And then in verse 9, what does he say? He doesn't say women kind. He says women. That's who he's talking to. So verse 8, men, you are to lead the church in the priority of prayer. But notice the qualification given for those who are leading the church in prayer. This is not any old Tom, Dick, or Harry off the street. It's not somebody that just walks in and happens along that is to stand up and lead in prayer. Indeed, these men who are leading the congregation are to be men that lift up holy hands. Holy hands stand in stark contrast to unclean hands, which depict sinful hands and sinful hearts that are not acceptable to God our Savior. Indeed, Paul, Paul's point here in this passage is not so much the posture of our outward appearance. In other words, that our hands be upright and stand, but understand that should not be a problem for us either. I know some of you are uncomfortable when you see your pastor standing on the front row and lifting his hands in prayer, lifting his hands in praise to God. But you need to understand here within this passage, it calls for holy men to lift up their hands to God. And if you don't have a problem lifting up your hands and shouting at the top of your voice, hooping and hollering on Saturday afternoon or Sunday afternoon for your favorite football team, you should not have a problem lifting up your hands and lifting up your voice to your great Savior. That's just off the topic, but that's okay. We need to understand we ought to lift our hands up to our great God. The primary principle is that the heart of a praying man should be morally pure. The psalmist in Psalm chapter 66, verse 18, knew the importance of having a pure heart before God when he said this, If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. If I open myself up and put wickedness before godliness, if I have made it within my heart a place of iniquity and sin, listen, God will not hear my voice. In the blind man uh, there in John chapter 9 who was healed by Jesus answered his questioners and his critics about Jesus. They said, who is this man? And he said, listen, I don't know, but all I know is that I was blind and now I see. And they further pressed him, how did he heal you? What did he do to heal you? And the blind man responded in this way, we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. 
And guess what? Jesus had prayed for this man to be healed, and he was healed. God heard his prayer. And so we understand that the holy man of God is the one who is to be praying. The Jews ceremonially wash their hands before prayer as a symbol of spiritual cleanness within their worship service because the hands represented the conditions of a person the condition of a person's heart and soul. Indeed, as we read and saw in Psalm chapter 24, verses 3 and 4, what did it say? Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has what? Clean hands and a pure heart. Clean hands symbolize for us an outward purity in the testimony of a life consecrated and committed to the service of God. A pure heart depicts a clean and undefiled inner witness before the living God. Indeed, combined together, these men were a depiction of God's transformative gospel that had, t- had changed their lives and indeed their witness within the congregation and within the community. And Paul specifically illustrates holy hands as those that are not used for wrath or dissension. Not those hands that are not used to slap, to hit, to strike their spouse, their children, or others. These are not hands that are raised in a moment of fury to strike fear into an opponent. These are holy hands. Before the living God. Indeed, we are to guard ourselves against feuding and fighting and fussing. We are not to be people who are known for our wrath and our dissension. We are to be people who are known for a holy hand lifted up before a holy God. Anytime we pervert our identity in Jesus Christ and become entangled in these things, these divisions, these factions, and this chaos, the church's mission is compromised and our prayers are hindered. Anytime we pervert who we are in Christ Jesus and we become uh, consumed with wrath and dissension, with factions and divisions among the church, listen, what does that lead to? It leads to the church's mission being compromised and it leads to our prayers being hindered before the living God. Turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. And there it says, there, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says to the people, if you are presenting your offering at the altar and remember that your brother has something against you, not that you have something against your brother, you remember there's a problem between you and your brother and it's coming from your brother, then leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. Jesus says, don't wait a moment because when you wait, listen, your testimony and witness is compromised and your prayers Your offerings are hindered before God. Indeed, the purpose of our instruction is according to chapter 1, verse 5, there in 1 Timothy, where it says, The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. That is the goal of the Christian instruction. And so, men, it is your role. It is your responsibility. And we will say more about this in chapter 3 as we come to the church offices of elder and deacon. We will say more about it. But it is your role and responsibility to lead this congregation and every congregation with holy hands and pure hearts as we put a priority on prayer. Indeed, let me say this as a word of admonition. Family life flows into the life of the church family. You don't just stand up here on Sunday morning and start praying and that's your first chance. Listen, your 
family life is what sets the precedent for what you do within the life of the church family. And so, men, you need to hear Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 27, where it says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by what? The washing of water with the word of God, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she would be holy and blameless. Your holiness and your leadership within the household that you are entrusted with in your local family indeed flows over into the life of the local church family. As you come to worship, your holiness at home matters to the healthiness of this church. We are to be men who lead responsibly within the church, the worship service of the living God, and we are to be holy men that lead within the worship of the living God. But secondly, we are now going to turn our attention to the women. And as we come to the to turn our attention to the women, we need to rightly understand what is being said and guard ourselves against two errors that have been made. Number one, we need to guard ourselves against overstepping the commands and making ourselves legalists and not scripturalists. In other words, we need to guard ourselves against just mere external conformity to the Word of God and not internal transformation. And so we need to guard ourselves against overstepping the commands and making ourselves legalists of the Word of God. But secondly, we need to guard ourselves against another problem that often occurs within our culture, and that is undercutting the principles and removing the authority and sufficiency of Holy Scripture. Have you ever heard anybody? Well, that's just the Bible. That was written 2,000 years ago. That doesn't apply to me. Yes, it does. It is the Word of God. All of God's Scripture may not have been written to you, but all of God's Scripture is written what? For you. All of God's Scripture may not be written to you. All of God's Scripture is written for you. And so we don't need to remove the authority and sufficiency that the Holy Scripture of God has within our lives. In the first case, we need to guard ourselves against legalism and saying that only certain hairstyles, accessories, or clothing styles are removed or forbidden. We need to make sure that we don't say, well, it's only this type. Have you ever met anybody who says, well, I don't braid my hair, so I'm in accordance with 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9? I have. Run into them all the time. And they may have kept it outwardly, but they haven't kept it inwardly. And then there are others that I've run into where, where they uh, just gloss over the Scripture, as I said a moment ago, as a cultural issue that doesn't concern us because it doesn't apply. And we must say to them, listen, all of Scripture is in Second, uh, Second Timothy chapter 3.16, all Scripture is theonoustos, God-breathed. Therefore, it is uh, applicable for teaching, for reproof, for training and correction in righteousness. Indeed, as we come today, I want you to understand it wasn't just Paul. He wasn't out of t- some out-of-touch guy, uh, chauvinist pig, that was writing the scriptures that somehow uh, he got it wrong and you have now gotten it right. 
for indeed in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, we find a very similar uh, command. And listen to it now. In the same way, you wives, the submissive, uh, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. As they observe your chaste and respectful behavior, your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be hidden the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. Now, if we were to say that he is forbidding and forbaying uh, braiding of hair and all kinds of little ornaments or trinkets, we would have to deal with the fact that Peter doesn't say they are banned. Peter just says, listen, don't be concerned. Don't adorn yourself merely with the external adornment. In fact, if we were to be a real legalist and and really were to hold to the scripture, we would go back to some of the old translations, which said it this way. Women, your adornment is not to be in the wearing of clothes. That'd make for an interesting worship service next week. If we were just legalists, we are not to be literalists. We are to be literal students of the word of God. So what is Paul saying and why is he saying it? Well, here's what Paul is saying. He's saying in verses 9 and 10 that the attire of Christian women should be godliness known through their good works. The attire of Christian women should be godliness known through their good works. And next week we will cover the attitude of Christian women that is to be submissive and quiet and reverent. But understand, first of all, in verses 9 and 10, Paul continues to expand on the fact that holy hands and a pure heart flows from a communication with God that reflects his heart in our lives. Specifically, Paul says, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, with modesty and discretion, not with braided hair and gold and pearls or costly garments. Now, this instruction, understand, had First of all, there was an immediate application that was to be made within the church at Ephesus under the pastoral uh, leadership of young Timothy. But it also has an abiding and an enduring application to the church in every generation, at every time, and in every place. How do you know that? Well, it said in verse 8, what the men are to pray where? Everywhere. In every place. And likewise... The connecting word, likewise, just like the men in every place are given this charge, now he comes back and says, and likewise, the women in every place are to follow what I'm about to teach you. The attire and the attitude are to be in this respect, in every place. In other words, in every place, at every time, throughout the history of the church, these words have an abiding and an enduring application. There was a specific application to Timothy in the church at Ephesus, but now it abides with us even until this day. Everybody understand that? Yes, no, I don't care. As we come today, 
we need to understand the instruction to men is on a different subject matter. But the net impact for both sexes is the same. Holiness, godliness, and consecrated lives within those that worship the Lord. Just as the men are to prepare properly for worship, so that so too should the ladies prepare properly for the worship service of the Lord. Now, ladies, let us say this. Our grooming and clothing says a lot about our values and what we think, doesn't it? Yes, no. Yes, it does. Of course it does. And just by, you know, some, some legalists have taken the passages and uh, drawn them out to say that indeed you should never wear any kind of makeup or anything like that within the worship service. Let me just say, I've never seen an old barn that couldn't use a fresh coat of paint from time to time. It's okay. It's not a scriptural principle. You'll never forget that, I promise you. But as we come, we ought to let the word and the truth of God's word Speak clearly into our lives. If a woman dresses in a sensuous manner, or if by inordinate attention to grooming, she emphasizes external beauty over the eternal gospel, which is to be the point of the local church service, it reveals that her emphasis is on the superficial and the sensual and not on the spiritual. Indeed, it reveals she is concentrating on the superficial and not the spiritual, the sensual and not the sacred. Indeed, Paul's directive means that Christian men Women should not dress in a seductive manner, nor in an overly luxurious manner that would arouse jealousy on the part of the poorer women within the congregation. You shouldn't be stirring up strife and contention, divisions among yourselves. So listen, don't dress in a showy or seductive manner. And listen, don't dress in an overly elaborate manner. That's what Paul says. In fact, the, the guiding word there uh, in verse 9, a costly garment, expensive garment. See, some of them would be wearing clothes that cost 7,000 denarii. By the way, the wages for the average man per day was what? One denarii. Some of the ladies would be wearing all kinds of things. And I need to say this. There is a difference between what is attractive and what is sensual. And every lady knows the difference. Is that right, ladies? There is a difference between attractive and sensual. And every lady knows the difference. Obviously, Paul is talking about the women's appearance when she attends church. But the principles should govern all of our attire at all times. That indeed we should never dress in a sensual or showy way so that everybody's eyes and attention are drawn to our earthly endowments and not to our eternal creator. He is not prohibiting here a woman from looking attractive. The prohibition is against seductive or showy adornment. Paul is not putting an absolute ban on women braiding their hair or wearing modest jewelry. He's talking about the emphasis of what you are doing. He was correcting women who went to great expense and great effort to braid jewels and expensive trinkets into their hair. They would wrap up their hair. They would braid it up. And as they were braiding, they would braid in strands of gold and pearls and trinkets and ornaments so that when they walked into the room and the light hit their hair, it was fire. And everybody was drawn to them and not the reason that they were supposed to be at worship, worshiping God 
See, the women, these women, thought that their appearance, their adornment, and their attire were primary. But their appearance did not reflect a value system with God at the center, nor did it draw you to see their godly character. Indeed, if you were dressed in this way, would it be immediately obvious for those who were looking at you that your sole concern within the worship service of God was worshiping Him and not having people see you? See, it focused on the external. It focused on the worldly. It was the wrong emphasis. Christian women are to be marked by good works. If Paul was writing in the 60s, he would have said something like, listen, don't wear those mini skirts to church. In the 90s, don't wear micro skirts or Daisy Dukes to church. He was writing, don't wear what you see on MTV to church. Okay, maybe that's a little bit extensive. But understand, don't wear those deep diving halter tops so that everybody sees what God intended for your husband to enjoy. Indeed, we need to understand, don't wear bathing suits to church. There's an appropriate place and an appropriate time for bathing suits, but it's not within the church service worshiping our living God. As I ministered and showed this principle explicitly to a group of young ladies and a group of young men uh, who I had taken to youth camp some years ago in Georgia. We had a problem. I had already told all the ladies, hey, listen, please don't send your girls. And I told the girls, too, please don't bring and pack anything that might distract or deter our young men from worshiping the living God. What do you think they packed in? Everything that would distract and deter our young men from focusing on God. And one night I walked into the room and they came in and I had laid on the table something and I had just dropped a a sheet off the bed over the top of it. And I looked at him, I said, what's under this sheet? They looked at me and said, we don't know. What's under the sheet? We don't know. So I sort of flattened it out a little bit, said, what's under the sheet? We don't know. We can't see what's under the sheet. So I flattened it out a little more. And finally, that that sheet was flat against the table. And they could see clearly that there was a book. And so somebody finally raised their hand. It's a book. It's a book that's under the sheet. Well, that's good. And so I took my hands. And as tight as I could pull, I stretched that sheet across that book. And I said, now what book is this? And they looked and they said, the Bible. Why? Because it was stretched so tightly you could see straight through it. Ladies, some of your dress reflects that same principle. It's stretched so tight that what your creator intended for the intimacy of your husband, everyone can see. I would encourage my Christian sisters to take to heart Paul's command here to dress modestly and to dress discreetly. Modestly means to be free from shame. Discreetly means to have control over one's passions. It's character and not clothes that makes a woman. It's holiness and not hair that makes a godly woman. It is godliness and not Gucci that makes a godly woman. It's temperament and not Tiffany's that makes a godly woman. Godliness. And not gaudiness is an issue for all of us at all times, everywhere. And we need to be sensitive to it. 
Because ladies, in the passage that describes what a woman of God is to be in Proverbs chapter 31, there is only one verse that deals with beauty. And let me read it to you. Men, you would do well to hear this, especially young men searching for a wife. You listen to these words that tell us what is to be important within the life of our maid. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Listen. Women must dress properly and put their emphasis on godliness in good works. Why do you say that, Pastor? Well, I say it for this reason. Because, listen, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. What is it that you are showing off? What is it that you are looking at? In a wonderful book called Men and Women Equal Yet Different, Michael Alexander Strzok records two quotes within it. And it's here, uh, in, here that George W. Knight III makes this quote. He says this about this passage that we are studying. Paul is advocating not just modesty and dress, but also that more time and energy be spent on spiritual adornment. Not just modesty and dress. But that you spend far more time on what? Spiritual adornment than sensual adornment. John Stott says this. The church should be a veritable beauty parlor because it encourages its women members to adorn themselves with good deeds and godliness. I am thankful that God has given us such a wonderful church with so many beauties to behold all around us. Not because of their showy and sensual dress, but because they are what? They are godly women who are exercising good works. Listen, when you get ready on Sunday morning, prepare, ladies, to come and to meet your maker. Who do you dress for on Sunday mornings? As you stand in the mirror, have you ever paused for a second and just asked the question, Jesus, how do I look? Would Jesus blush if he were to walk in beside you to the worship service this morning? Indeed, we must ask that question. Are we going for sensual and sexual attraction or are we going for spiritual adornment? And we ought to put far more of our time and energy and effort into being what? Spiritually adorned rather than sensual and showy. Next week, we will return to pick up the closing controversial verses in our culture but we need to come prepared to hear god's word to heed god's word to receive his instruction and apply it into our lives and realize that within today we are surrounded by a culture and a society that places preeminence and priority on the external the expensive and the extravagant they want to be judged on appearances and not upon substances as i was a boy growing up in the middle of nowhere georgia we got three channels on the tv and two of those were snowy we had three channels to watch and on Saturday nights we'd sit down and we'd turn it on and inevitably the TV would make its way to PBS and there on PBS we'd watch the Lawrence Welk show anybody remember the Lawrence Welk show yeah if you're gray gray or no hair you remember the Lawrence Welk show and then after the Lawrence Welk show we would watch keeping up appearances and there on keeping up appearances there was a lady named Hyacinth and her last name she would always pronounce always correct anybody who mispronounced her last name she would always say my name is Hyacinth what 
bouquet, spelled bucket. She wanted the appearance of more than who she was. Indeed, the church of Jesus Christ is not to be concerned with merely the external appearances, but with the internal and the eternal adornment of our lives. The priority of the worship of the living God and a concern for the gospel to go forward is to fill each of our lives as we prepare to come into the place of God to worship Him in spirit and in truth. Men, your role and responsibility is to lead the congregation specifically in prayer with holy hands and a pure heart. Women, you are to adorn yourselves with godly through your good works so that the essence of who you are supersedes the external adornments that you wear. Who do you come for? How do you prepare? What are you here for? Are you worshiping a great God who has saved your soul? Or are you worshiping the thoughts and the opinions and the stuff of this world? Matthew chapter 5 verses 14 through 16 says this. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Men, do your holy hands draw attention to your Father who's in heaven and shine his light in this world? Ladies, do your good works and godly attire, does it glorify God and draw men and women's eyes, not to you, but to your creator? This morning as we close, let us take seriously the worship of our God and prepare ourselves each and every week to come and to hear his word, to receive it and to apply it to our lives so that we may have changed and transformed lives by the power of the gospel to go out and to show the community what it means to be a Christian. Father, we come in this time. I pray that you would lead us and guide us.